0: Show. We clash momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency, greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody, break bread, racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted by we live in time to build a new system, unionize labor rights, highlight the issue, talk heads left his best, the saga continues. The no-meeky show.
1: Hello and welcome to The Key Show. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, It is Wednesday, January 5th. And tomorrow, in case you've been hiding under a rock, uh, tomorrow is the one-year marker, I'm not going to say anniversary because it's nothing to celebrate, one-year marker of the attempted coup. Remember that a year ago when uh, a bunch of far-right extremists and QAnon supporters and Trump supporters Stormed the Capitol, planned to, I don't know, hang the vice president, the vice president under Donald Trump, who was going to verify the legitimate election of Joe Biden. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Turns out a lot of people are in trouble that helped organize it, including potentially some lawmakers. This was not some accident. This was not some blog post that sparred a movement. This was a coordinated, orchestrated event. And we are just starting to learn some of the details in depth. Whether it's congressional members communicating from the inside with the organizers on the outside, whether it's organizers who are trying to distance themselves, and who knows, maybe cutting some sort of plea, deal, plea deals to uh, to out other organizers, then we find out that there are many, many, many people who showed up that day who did not understand that they were part of a conspiracy. And some have even said, now they see the light and they understand once they've been arrested by the FBI. There are those like the QAnon shaman who have been imprisoned. Uh, and there are those who've been arrested by the FBI who have pled for them not to tell their mothers like they didn't know once the FBI interviewed them. This is not something that is a one-off. It was a day where the rest of the world sort of just looked at the U.S. and said, now do you get it? Do you get how fast this rises? How fascism spreads? Do you get it? It can happen here. And whether or not those events, which I think they were very successful at what they did, but whether they felt they were successful in, I don't know, somehow overturning the election results, which would have not been doable, but they stormed the Capitol, they got the attention, it went too far, as even Don Jr. and many uh, many hosts at Fox News tried to tell the president through the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, whether or not they were successful or not, this is really the beginning. I think my New Year's resolution, as dark as it may be, uh, is to really help our, our movement focus on what's in front of us, what our immediate crises are. We've been focusing a lot on long-term goals, which is extremely important. Institution building, running progressives against bad Democrats, but now we see that this is really taken on a life of its own. I remember just a few years ago when people thought that the Republican Party was dying, that they were facing a demographic challenge, that they were too white, and they were too old, and they're out of touch with an ever-changing, diversifying country. Well... They have found, as they always do, a way to rule by minority. And that minority is growing. They're radicalizing people who are young through things like being an anti-vaxxer or anti-establishment or QAnon with crazy conspiracy theories that prey on people who understandably don't trust institutions, but they're Steering their energy and their anger in the wrong directions. Donald Trump did it by saying, you know, build the wall, it's the Mexican fault, the Mexicans' fault for stealing your jobs. That's not a new strategy. It's just now they are taking that sentiment, that anti-establishment sentiment, which is of course very high because of the conditions we're living in. And they're steering it in directions at Democrats, AOC, extraordinary conspiracies saying that you know, the vaccine mandate and mask mandate and now it's COVID testing mandates are a form of the state oppressing their people. Of course, that's not true. We all know what the state oppressing their people actually looks like in this country. It happens every day. The police force consistently gets away with murdering and injuring people of color. That is the state quite literally oppressing its people. The state in conjunction with corporations, of course, oppressing its people when they don't deliver the relief needed during a pandemic, during an economic crisis, when folks don't know if the eviction moratorium will remain in many states like New York, when there's barely any relief given beyond, you know, a couple thousand dollars last year in an election year by Donald Trump and and Congress, of course, we don't know if there's going to be any more relief. We can't even pass BBB. Because the Republicans and the center-right and center-left have been working together for 30, 40 years to make sure that corporations and the wealthy are protected. We know this. So across the board, Americans are frustrated. The question is, what are you going to do with your energy? How do we make sure that this greater threat of, of rising fascism, as the Republicans and far right have taken over the courts, the election commissions, they'll likely win Congress, they'll likely win the Senate, and quite possibly win the presidency in a couple years. Are we prepared for that? Are we doing everything we possibly can to fight that, to get more progressives in? Should progressives be running up and down the ballot? I, I think so, you've heard me talk about this. You have proud boys running for school board and for city council across this country. Koch brothers have been investing there for, for decades. Do we have to rely on the Democrats to do so? Instead of complaining about the Democrats, why don't we just run? It is much more achievable to do so at a local level than it is for Congress against an, an institutional Democrat who's going to make sure there throw a lot of money. doesn't mean that you can't run for, for those seats. It just means we have to do more. That's my opinion. So we're very excited that uh, we are going to be launching a new a couple of a few new things this year. Uh, one is a partnership with the Benjamin Dixon Show. Of course, Ben is a, is a dear friend of the show and an ally, and we are going to be doing a segment every Wednesday on our show and on his show in the morning, so 8 a.m. Eastern on his, on his show, on his channel in the morning. Uh, we're going to be talking with Ben, and then he's going to come over at 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Eastern on our show to talk about what it means to be an ally. We will bring in folks from different communities, talk about solidarity with those communities, how you can be a good ally. And this is gonna be part of the toolkit that we present to everyone so that we can make sure to get out of this rut and and act as, as, as wisely as we possibly can to build consortium, to build alliances, to build actual solidarity. Because once again, as we always know, they're always trying to divide us. So what can we do to maintain that solidarity And fight smarter. So we're excited because today's our first day with Benjamin Dixon. Uh, He is going to be on right after our first guest. Our first guest is the one and the only Steven Donzinger. Hello, oh, hello, everybody. All right. Well, I am going to do these announcements to remind everybody that Matriarch Organization is hosting a training on January 29th. If you know of somebody, a woman, uh, some we, we we are an inclusive organization, so all women are welcome as long as they're progressive and working women. Uh, Major of course, supports working class women running for office, local to federal, so they could be running for school board, they could be running against one of those proud boys, uh, city council, town council, state senate, all the way to Congress. But if you do know somebody who's interested in running or is running you should urge them to go to the Matriarch website and sign up for a full-day training. This is so important because these trainings have not been happening as regularly for candidates uh, over the last few years because of COVID. But also, the Matriarch training is a little bit different. It's focusing on the class-related issues that working women face when they run for office. They face a lot of issues that deal with the systemic barriers. Uh, You know, you have to raise a lot of money. You have to get the right staff. Sometimes endorsements, even from big progressive names, doesn't come. They don't come until a candidate has really built the infrastructure that they need. So we are very excited to do this training. It's for free for all candidates and, and women that are thinking about running, and their staffers, their high up staffers. Uh, if you if you'd like to contribute, of course, to help us make more trainings free for more women, uh, you can go to the site that we have up on screen. But uh, the matriarch candidate training, if you go to matriarch pack.com you can click on that fill out the form tell us about uh your race or the race you're thinking about running a little bit about you know background on what you do and we will make sure uh, that will send you the link for the training it's a full day event the agenda is amazing i will start teasing out some names probably on friday uh we have the agenda set and we're hoping to get a few hundred women so please share this far and wide the candidate training on the right and then of course the endorsements are open for 2022 so if you know of an incredible candidate make sure to send in an endorsement hopefully they'll be going to the training as well all right thank you to everybody uh for your support because we did hit our goal at the end of december Thanks to your help. So now we can make sure that these trainings are free. Our first guest is the one and the only Stephen Donzinger. We've been covering Stephen's case, uh, as you all know. He's been on many times before. We've been covering uh, his, his legal situation since uh, the springtime. And Stephen is, of course, known for his legal battles with Chevron, particularly the Lago, Lago Agrio oil field case. Uh, he, uh, he represented over 30,000 farmers and indig- indigenous people from Ecuador uh, in that case against Chevron related to environmental damages and health effects uh, due to oil drilling, and Ecuador Awarded the plaintiffs nine point five billion dollars in legal damages, and then of course they went after him. Uh, he is he is now out of the Danbury prison for, that he was in in Connecticut, and he is home. But you are still welcome, by the way, Stephen. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Happy New Year. Uh, you look healthy, so that I think is let's let's just start off with you know people don't always look their finest or feel their finest? How are you feeling after being at Danbury and and now home?
2: Um, thank you for having me, Namiki. It's always great to, to share my perspective with you. I mean, I, I feel pretty good. Um, I'm not happy that I'm still in this incredibly long detention. I'm not free. I am home, but I have an ankle bracelet, and I can't go anywhere. I'm in detention here under the custody of the Bureau of Prisons. Um, but obviously, I'm thrilled to be out of Danbury and back with my family. Um, I question, however, uh, you know, I have roughly four months left on my sentence um, of a six month sentence. And again, I assert my innocence. My case is under appeal, it's a contempt mm-hmm. case. But, you know, you might remember prior to going to prison, I was home under home detention for 26 months. That's over two years. Um, And that didn't count toward my sentence. So I'm questioning now why the 26 months or for the 26 months wouldn't apply to the four months I have left. And I should just be released right now. So we're we're going to try to do something about that. But, you know, I'm happy to be home and I'm feeling relatively well, and I'm just, you know, I'm just looking forward to the future.
1: Um, Just some logistical questions here. How is this, is it different at all from your house arrest? You have an ankle bracelet, but but other than that, I mean, is there anything else that occurs in your home?
2: Well, it's, it's different. I mean, in this sense, uh, the Bureau, first of all, when I was under house arrest prior to going to prison, I was under the supervision of it Office in the um, under the U.S. federal court. Once you go to prison, you're, you start your sentence. You are in, under the auspices of a different entity called the Bureau of Prisons, which is a bureaucracy that you know carries out the sentences that judges impose. But judges no longer are involved, um, mm-hmm. which in a bizarre way is a good thing because, uh, as you know, Judge Kaplan and Judge Preske are the two judges you know, that were, I think, very conflicted and had ties to Chevron, who kind of came after me and created this awful situation where I'm, you know, have been in detention now for two and a half years. Um, They have nothing to do with this. So Mm -hmm. right now, every day, um, the Bureau of Prisons, uh, you know, or their representative calls me up a couple times a day, sometimes more, and I have to send a I have to take a selfie picture on a special phone they gave me to prove I'm at home. And on top of that, I have an ankle bracelet where they can monitor all my movements. Um, I can get out for extremely limited purposes. Um, You know, lawyer meetings, medical doctor's appointments, stuff related to my son's school, although he's now um, remote because of the COVID thing. So I'm pretty much here, you know most of the day usually all day all night uh, but you know here means I can still work and communicate and you know come on your show and you know be with my family and cook you know mm. the, the prison experience was much more brutal than I had expected there was a mm-hmm. The conditions were terrible, frankly. Um, you you
1: were sending updates. It was it was we were reading some of the updates on air uh, mm-hmm. to to our, our viewers pretty regularly. And uh, there's the COVID scenario, which is horrifying. But you were moved. You were in one facility, and then you moved to another. Can you describe just some of the conditions for folks who who may have yeah, missed that? I mean,
2: just so people know, um, in the federal prison system, there's various layers of security. You know, There's penitentiaries, which are the top, then high security, medium, low, and then camps. Mm-hmm. Depending on your level of threat and whatever, they, they do an internal assessment, decide what level to put you at. There's over 100 prisons, federal prisons in the United States. So the one I went to was a low security, but because of COVID, um, they locked down the whole facility. Most of the time I was there, I was there for 45 days, and that meant we couldn't get out We get out like one or two hours a week. Um, I lived in a very small cell built for one person, but I had a, a cellmate. Um, and, you know, you just, there's just no space. And, you know, ostensibly it was to protect us from, or protect the prison population from the spread of COVID. But like there was zero social distancing, very few masks. Um, the medical attention was virtually non-existent. People who had symptoms would ask for attention and they wouldn't even get a response for 10 days. Um, you know, Were they vaccinating folks? Yes, but not systematically. Like you had to ask for it. Um, and then there was zero <laughs> testing, meaning they did not know whether there was COVID in the prison or not. And the rates of vaccination among staff, meaning the correctional officers who, you know, most of them are good people trying to do their jobs, um, was only about 50%. So, you know, these people were coming in from the community around Danbury, Connecticut, which, by the way, Connecticut was, at the time I was there, experiencing very high rates of COVID. And they were, you know, going out, living in the community, coming in, and half of them were not even vaccinated. And the real threat of COVID wasn't from inmates, it was from staff that, you know, were coming in and out of the community. And but no one really understood anything about the um, the amount of COVID in the prison. You know, and the prison would publicly report they had no cases. It was extraordinary okay. because they didn't test, Unreal. you know. And there, and there were not only that, there were other very elderly inmates who'd been in the system quite Many years, who you know were having great difficulty getting appropriate medical care, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't know the ins and outs of the budgets and how the Bureau of Prisons kind of looks at these issues, but I saw with my own eyes people who were not getting adequate medical care, and um, I felt personally, frankly, um. I just didn't feel safe from a medical standpoint. I mean, I, f- I felt safe physically. I mean, the people were really nice. The other people living there, you know, the what we call inmates, I hate using that word,
0: Yeah.
2: were interesting, respectful. Um, I've always said this, there's more respect on the inside of prison, at least this prison, than there is out here in the world. Mm-hmm. People just respect each other. You know, there's so little space, you kind of have to, to be able to get along and, make the experience somewhat tolerable, you know, Mm -hmm. but, and the other issue is I found there was a real lack of food. Um, I, I lost 25 pounds in 45 days. I I can't explain it. I, I was eating, but the portions and they would give you were really small. And, um, I'm a big guy and I just lost a lot of weight. And also there were, you know, the, the nutrition was lacking. There were Literally no fresh vegetables. I mean, I didn't have one salad the whole time. Okay. I, I had to scrounge, and I got some guy who worked in the kitchen once brought me a carrot, and I, I basically ate a bite for ten straight days and nursed oh day it down nub. I mean, I was just so into this carrot. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, in, yeah. the things you take for granted. Like, like, if you get hung, if you have resources and you're free, and you get hungry, you know, you can always go to your fridge or order in if you live in manhattan or go down to the you know some store and get food right doesn't work that way in prison like you don't you can't get access to food if you're hungry you know unless mm. you work the system or have some way but it's never that easy so i found that to be difficult um but of course i wasn't the only one experiencing that by the way a lot of people in prison, spent a lot of money in the commissary, meaning if you don't get enough money in the cafeteria, they call it the chow hall, you know, once a week, you can go to the store where, you know, you buy stuff from your commissary account, but like the store doesn't have any fresh food either. It's all processed food or, or, or like Doritos. I mean, people just Mm -hmm. like lived off of junk food. Um and I just refused to succumb to that, you know. So I, I just tried to really eat out of the chow hall and it it, it you know I did the best I could. <laughs> it was much better where I am now than in prison.
1: I can imagine, <laughs> especially in New York. Um yeah. what was uh, what were the other inmates like? What were they Did they understand why you were sentenced? Uh, it is a complicated case. I'm just saying, like, were there other folks in in Danbury who had similar charges, I guess not the same as yours, but similar level charges.
2: So that's an interesting question. First of all, when you're like an older white guy like me and you come in, there's a, there's kind of a presumption that you're committed some sort of sex offense. I noticed that, you know,
1: <laughs> really. I'm not, I, I don't mean to laugh, but that's that's very, I would have thought like Wall Street, some sort of well, you know, they, they, you know
2: either a sex offense or maybe, maybe that, you know, yeah. but, but interesting. Um, you know, the first thing others want to find out is why you're there hmm. and they want to be sure because there's a hierarchy of like these dynamics where sex offenders are not respected and they other people living there don't want to associate with them. And so they're like, what would you do? Why are you here? Mm-hmm. And when I said I'm here for contempt of court. They're like, what's that? You know, oh, Contempt to court, you mean you told a judge to go F off, you know, <laughs> like, we like you. <laughs> it's not what I did. You're like, kind way. of,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, as, just- not as aggressively, <laughs> but.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I didn't, yeah, but like, okay, yeah, yeah, something like that. And um, then, then they found out I was a lawyer. And and just, I think, the way I conducted myself, and I, you know, people would come to me with, legal questions. And I mean, I've made it clear I was not there to practice law, would not practice law and and didn't even understand half of that area of the law anyway. But I would would try to help people or help them think through some of their problems and their legal problems, because there's a lot of advocacy that goes on in prison. People are always trying to figure out a way to get out early or to, you know, to raise issues of compassionate release because of COVID. I mean, there were so many ways the advocacy could happen. In the prison, most defense lawyers just abandon their clients. You know, when they go into prisons, think the case is over. So, you know, I did a lot of that, and and I just met some fabulous people, some hyper creative, smart, good people, and mm-hmm. you know, it enhanced me as a human being. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to give you one example. Um, so, I was living in this cell. And there was a guy living literally next door, but like for days I never talked to him. I didn't know his name. Um, he's really quiet. And some other guy down the hall said, you know, that guy who lives next door to you was convicted of, of a gang murder. And he's been in prison uh, 17 years. And the guy was young. I mean, he's like in his yeah. 30s. And I'm like, really? Wow. And so I got to know him a bit and he told me what had happened. and yeah he killed somebody um he said I, I had to kill someone when I was 18 or or he was going to kill me and I had no choice and I was in a gang wow if I wanted to survive you know and 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 like this, this was like an incredibly thoughtful sensitive uh, smart humble man mm mm-hmm. And he'd been in 17 years, you know, pretty much half his life. Um, and I just don't think he should be there anymore. He's been rehabilitated, you know. So, so taxpayers are paying um, $40,000 a year for his incarceration. Uh, he's got another, check this out, he's got another 14 years. So what i what i found by the way i'm sorry i going on i could talk about this forever it's so interesting you know it's not that that people there were innocent i mean a lot of people did things that were crimp or crimes you know but it's just the length of the sentences just struck me as bizarrely extraordinary i mean 15 20 years you know judge a judge like 10 years 15 years without like even thinking and it's like 15 years for this stuff? Right. And a lot of okay. these are non you know, that obviously was a violent offense, but a lot of nonviolent offenses where people were serving 5, 10, 15 years for like financial stuff. And I just was shocked at the length of the sentences. I mean, I'd come in and be like, your sentence is six months. Oh my God, that's nothing. You'll be out in no time. now I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> oh, it seems <laughs> like an eternity <laughs> But like you couldn't say like oh you know because you're talking to a guy who's got 20 year sentence six months oh my god you're so lucky and and I didn't feel that and and I will say that I was the only person in this entire prison and there were not about 900 men there who was there for a misdemeanor everyone else was there for a felony so and and, and, and by the way the prison authorities were like I mean what they,
1: they were like shocked, like right?
2: they're like why are you here. Like, it doesn't make sense to us. We never see this kind of offense in, in a prison. You know, you wow. should have been sentenced to home confinement or probation. You know, and it just underscored my belief all along about this case, where I'm being punished for my successful human rights work against Chevron mm-hmm. um, by these judges. And, you know, once they got out of the realm of the judges and into the bureaucracy of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is a professional bureaucracy, I mean, they have policy, mm-hmm. they have, you know, decent people running it, um, it was very clear they had no interest in doing Chevron's bidding like these judges. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just treated me like a normal person who was there for that level of offense and they were shocked. And And they ended up, you know, furloughing me early for an appropriate reason that consistent with their policies.
1: I was going to ask you, how did that, had you been lobbying for it? How did it happen?
2: You know, I don't know exactly how it happened other than there's a, Congress passed when COVID hit. Congress passed a law called the CARES Act mm-hmm. that allowed wardens the authority to release um, inmates early to serve the rest of their sentences in home confinement, with the purpose of relieving some of the prison population, mm-hmm. such so, that so there could be more social distancing, et cetera. And they they said if you're 60 years of age or over with some sort of comorbidity, you know. They had the authority to do that, so you know, honestly, I don't think there was a ton of that going on, but I think the authority existed, and I think on the basis of that law, um, they looked at my situation. By the way, I'm embarrassed, well, not embarrassed, I'll just acknowledge I turned 60 in September of this oh, year.
1: Oh, happy birthday! Thank
2: you, which was you know, roughly two months before um, right. I went in. So that was the authority that they used to allow me to serve the rest of my sentence at home. But again, I emphasize, even though I'm home, I'm not free. I'm still under the custody of Bureau of Prisons. That's fascinating.
1: So, so now, okay, so when you are free, I guess, what happens, like where, where does this fight go? Uh, how is, are, are there any, is there anything happening to make sure that, that Chevron does pay Because, okay, they've punished you, but then what what else could they potentially do at this point?
2: Well, so the answer is there are other lawyers working on this matter. And the hope is they will carry the case forward and make sure Chevron complies with the judgment in Ecuador and pays the money to the indigenous peoples and farmer communities who have been, who the company poisoned over a period of decades. And, you know, I think there's a certain over on Steve Donziger and an under focus on the thing that really matters, which are the indigenous peoples and these communities in the Amazon and Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where the focus needs to go back to um, when I become free. Um, first of all, just to be clear, I'm disbarred as a lawyer in New York on the basis of this this silliness, you know, and I think that's a totally unfair decision. So. I'm going to try to get my law license back, um, but one thing is clear: is there are other lawyers who can carry this forward, and that really is the plan. As for me personally, I want to, you know, pursue a bunch of stuff I want to do, including writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to continue my human rights advocacy in a broad sense for the people of Ecuador and elsewhere. Um, and I'm thinking through the details of all of that, but I can tell you, I'm really, really, really excited about the future, about the opportunities that are out there. And it's very important that, you know, all the support that's come my way or in the way of the Ecuadorian communities that we continue to build a bigger and stronger and really turn what's been a campaign for many years into a movement for human rights accountability um for corporations that pollute i mean it's just important because people are being hurt all over the world but this total misconduct by chevron exxon so many companies are doing this um and it's just important that there be mechanisms in place and people in place and resources in place to hold these companies accountable because if we can't do that we will never save our planet from destruction i mean these are the companies that are driving this planet to ruin um on the climate issue so you know the human rights work the human rights legal work is intimately connected to the survival of the planet and i continue to i plan to continue to do this work i mean i'm doing it now from home (laughs) with an ankle bracelet on but come april 25th if not sooner i'm going to be free again and and you know be able to travel and we'll continue to do this work
1: do do you feel safe um traveling to ecuador or or other i mean i think of you know, knock on wood, everybody, um, I think of Berta Casadas, who, of course, many felt was so high profile and esteemed as as an ad- activist uh, who, you know, they went after in Nicaragua. But but, do you feel safe leaving the US where, you know, historically, this kind of stuff is not as it's, it's they go after you legally, <laughs> I guess is, yeah. is a better way of saying it.
2: Well, there's a lot of ways to try to destroy a person. You're right. In the U.S. it's done through the weaponization of the law um, and the abuse of the law, which is what's happened to me. But, you know, again, I don't feel destroyed at all. I actually feel enhanced by this whole experience. I think it might my platform is bigger than ever. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it worked, although I paid a, obviously a very heavy price personally, but it has not worked. Like we're, we're stronger now than we ever have been. And it's largely because I think Judge Kaplan, Judge Prescott, and Sherman totally overreached by going after me the way they did. And, you know, when I told my story, people responded. And now we have, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people who've heard about this, who had never heard about it before and who care. So that's that's a big step forward. We're strong. I want to just emphasize that. I think in terms of the security issue, um, something I always think about, you know, Global Witness does an annual report, you know, around, I don't know, two, I forget if it was two or 300 earth defenders, environmental activists were murdered last year oh, around geez. the world. Um, the woman you mentioned, Berta Casades, you know, that happened I think three or four years ago, but a huge environmental leader in Honduras and just <laughs> murdered, Excuse you me, know. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I don't feel totally secure <laughs> you know i are, i think there are forces out there that wouldn't mind if i disappeared from the face of the earth but on the other hand um i feel protected and i feel you know i don't think i'm a great risk but you know wherever you travel you have to calculate and assess risk and you know i will continue to do that and, and you know we'll see but i definitely at some point soon i hope plan on returning to ecuador and meeting with my clients and you know i've been there over 250 times it's almost like a second yeah i've traveled from new york to ecuador over 250 times in 20 years
1: and in what first led you to ecuador how did you get looped I, i was
2: sure when i was in law school i met um a student from ecuador john bonifaz and his father who um also was from Ecuador lived in Massachusetts. They were the ones who, you know, brought my attention to this issue and actually started the case. We we put a team together way back in the early nineties. Okay. <laughs> this lasted a long time, um, to go down there and investigate. April nineteen ninety-three was my first trip. And that's how we got going on this. But it was because I met people from Ecuador when I was in law school in, in Massachusetts that I became aware of this. I mean, it was a real hidden issue because um, it happened in such an isolated area of the world. And Of course, when Texaco, now Chevron, you know, del- made the decision to deliberately pollute. I mean, I wanna emphasize the pollution problem that I'm dealing with is not an accident. It's not like mm-hmm. the B problem in the Gulf. of. Mexico in 2010. This was a plan to save money to deliberately dump cancer-causing toxic waste into the environment, into indigenous ancestral lands, and it happened for decades. Millions of gallons of this benzene and cancer-causing toxins per day were being dumped into streams and rivers that people were drinking their water from. So, you know, Chevron knew when it was doing this that people would die, know thousands of people have died we don't know the precise number because there hasn't been a proper epidemiological study company obviously doesn't want to fund such a study but many many people have died um the statistics are off the charts and i've seen it with my own eyes people i know and in my travels so um you know once i saw it in april of 93 and, and also like visually it's it looks apocalyptic. I mean, it's called the Amazon Chernobyl for a reason. I mean, imagine seeing like Olympic swimming pools of oil in the jungle floor, um, oil on the roads, oil on people's bodies. Um, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe they, you know, they chose to do it that way, to, to operate that way. The operational practices were just terrible. And um, so once you see it, you sort of can't turn your back on it. And, and, you know, once I started down that road um, and we started to make progress and achieve a level of success, I, I just felt like I had a duty, an ethical duty to my clients who are very dependent on our team, you know, cause they had no ability to access courts without lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, we were raising funds to fund the case and they were very dependent on us to have any hope of getting a remedy and surviving Um, so i i was honored to be able to continue to do the work to still do the work um but it's lasted a long time and i think one reason it's lasted a long time is i don't think the courts are strong enough to take on corporate power the fossil fuel industry at this level um Hmm. and and the other reason is i think chevron um, feels so utterly threatened by the idea indigenous peoples could collect a multi-billion dollar payout in compensation for harm caused um, that they're literally spending, uh, you know, billions of dollars on 60 law firms and 2000 lawyers to try to prevent the people of Ecuador from collecting on their judgment because they see it as a existential threat to their business model, because frankly, they know they've done this in many countries. And if, if the people of Ecuador were to collect, um, it would inspire people in other countries to do the same thing and quickly their liability would, you know, would multiply and and they're just very scared of that. And I've always said they don't I don't they not only wanted to win the case, even though they've lost, we won the case, but they, they not only wanted to win the case, they wanted to kill off the idea of the case. Being unable to win and having lost, they go after the lawyers and they spend tons of money. They go after the lawyers who won, meaning me and others. Right. And they spend tons of money on their own corporate law firms like Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, Seward and Kissel, uh, King and Spalding, um, firms that just profit tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars from the fossil fuel companies to try to delay it as much as they can. You know, And the idea is to discourage other lawyers from even taking on these cases. You know, You look at me, they want to hold me up as like a symbol of something. So other lawyers don't do the cases, but I want to tell other lawyers, the fabulous case we've won. And I truly believe Chevron will pay in the near term and I'm doing pretty well myself. So you can do this work and you can be successful at it.
1: Um, Are there other other people, indigenous, other people around the the world who have suffered, you know, from, from environmental uh, spills, et cetera, that are moving forward with cases against Chevron or, or other oil companies? Like precedent or not? I mean, there's yeah.
2: I mean, so let me just say this. There are hundreds, if not thousands of potential cases against Chevron and the big oil companies around the world and in the United States. Very, very few of them are brought because the victims generally are, you know, don't have the resources. And it's, you know, there's not a whole lot of lawyers dedicated to this kind of work. Most of the legal talent works for the big companies where they can bill, you know, 1,500 bucks an hour and make a ton of money fighting people like me. So there's a real asymmetry of resources, but there's a ton of potential cases. Um, But the, the, you know, they're, they're hard to win because of the, disparity, the inequality of resources and the inability of judges, particularly the United States, who, you know, our federal judiciary is now extremely populated by right-wing pro-corporate judges to push forward the cases and to look at them as, you know, to really do their jobs and look at the facts and apply the law and be neutral. And, you know, we got a neutral judiciary in Ecuador which is where Chevron insisted the case be held and Chevron accepted jurisdiction. And that neutral judiciary looked at what happened and they're like, Chevron, you're liable. You owe these people money. Um, it's the judges in the United States, Judge Kaplan, Judge Prescott, who have been completely biased in favor of the oil company and seem utterly incapable of looking at this in a fair manner and you know, seem very threatened by the very idea of, of individuals with dark skin from the amazon coming into u.s courts and holding an american company accountable for destroying their ancestral lands and for poisoning their ecosystem which is what happened so it's the u.s judiciary the federal that has been structured in a way that has been extremely hostile to these types of human rights claims brought by victims of american corporate misconduct um it's the ecuadorian judges who by the way were chevron again one of the case held um who treated the case fairly and have affirmed the judgment against chevron which by the way has been affirmed by six different appellate courts including the supreme courts of both ecuador and canada for enforcement Mm -hmm. purposes so the the case is real it's valid and ultimately they're going to have to pay even though they try to spend a ton of time talking about me instead of the environmental crimes they committed in the amazon
1: Oh, well, don't you know that uh, yelling at a judge, I know that's not what you did, <laughs> is more serious than than you know, the deaths of, of hundreds of people. Um, I guess my last question is with the two judges, is there any accountability? Like, is there any sense now that folks are more aware, there's a lot of press, uh, that they're gonna be able to survive in their seats? Are there any complaints? I don't know how this judicial accountability works.
2: Well, there's precious little judicial accountability in the United States of America. And that's one thing I've noticed with my own eyes, my own experience. Um, you know, federal judges are appointed for life. Um, the only way they can be removed is through impeachment by Congress. It's happened only four times in the history of our country, four times to, you know, thousands and thousands of federal judges who have served throughout our history. It's virtually impossible to do um so you know judges federal judges tend to feel this tremendous sense of power um, and lack of accountability and most judges even right sort of right-wing judges i think take their obligations to adhere to the rule of law seriously i mean i, I don't i'm not an anti-judge person i actually think our judiciary on the whole in this country is not terrible could be much better, but if you are an individual judge with a political agenda, as Judge Kaplan is or Judge Preska is, these are federalist society judges, you know, and you decide to engineer an outcome, regardless of the facts or the law. I mean, you can seems like you can quite easily get away with it, which is what they did to me. I mean, we've been yelling about this for years. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the New York Federal Appellate Court, which oversees both of them, their trial judges, mm-hmm. has done virtually nothing to stop this. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, nothing to stop the fact that a respected human rights lawyer has been locked up, you know, steps from the courthouse in his home for over two and a half years on a misdemeanor where the maximum sentence is six months in jail. You know, where, where I'm held two years and two months before I go to prison, you know, for doing something to protect my client's interests when Judge Kaplan ordered me to turn my computer over to Chevron. You know, no lawyer in American history has ever been right. charged criminally with criminal contempt for appealing a civil discovery order in a civil case, which is what I did. So I'm, I'm really, frankly, disappointed in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, extremely disappointed that they have tolerated this abuse of my life, you know, abuse of my human rights. And I'll point out, you know, the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, which is an important human rights body in the world, endorsed by the United States of America, which has a seat on the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, which oversees this body, There are five very respected international jurists, lawyers, who looked at this situation and concluded that my detention is a violation of multiple provisions of international law, including the United Nations Charter and other treaties to which the United States is a signatory. Um, And they ordered the U.S. government to release me. Hmm. This decision, which is just, it's incredibly important like they never rule against the united states hardly ever wow has been completely ignored by the federal appellate courts that are overseeing my case you know i mean you would think like wow you know they take another look at this um i'm also disappointed frankly in attorney general garland you know we've been asking him for years i mean take back the prosecution from a private Chevron law firm. I'll remind people, my prosecution was um, not done by the U.S. government, which refused to prosecute me. It was originated by Judge Kaplan, who has ties to Chevron. He then appointed a Chevron law firm to prosecute me in the name of the public, and they've been paid over a million dollars of taxpayer money to lock me up for two-plus years. You know this was a chevron prosecution it violates the rule of law it's the first corporate prosecution ever in the united states and i promise everyone that if this kind of thing isn't stopped it's going to happen again and again and again targeting activists and lawyers like myself who take on these powerful fossil fuel interests i mean this is their playbook and i'm kind of a you know a rat in a laboratory experiment to them, mm-hmm. it's like a, a person they're experimenting with to see how far they can push this craziness. But I just find it shocking that our judges have not stopped this.
1: And now, nothing for Merrick Garland, nothing.
2: I mean, Merrick Garland is passive. I mean, come on, man, do your job. Do your job. I mean, do you want private corporate prosecutions in the United States of America? I mean, Countries that actually have much less respect for human rights than ours don't do that kind of thing, you know? And, and, uh, you know, and it's also while I'm at it expressing my disappointment, like where's the New York times on all this? I mean, they totally ignored my case. Um, What's that all about? You know, I went to Harvard law school with Barack Obama, by the way, we were in the same class and I've been locked up for two and a half years down the street from the New York times newsroom. And I'm a lawyer who, one, you know, a ten billion dollar judgment against Chevron, and come, come here and cover this. Yeah, for, for crying out loud! Why don't you do that? Because Chevron like had that much influence or such a big advertiser. So there's a lot of institutions in our society that, as you know, because you report on this stuff, have been seriously weakened in recent years. Institutions that used to check corporate power have become instruments of corporate power. And one is the judiciary. I mean, the judiciary used to have to be, you know, an antidote to that or the big media. And now they're becoming instruments of it. And I think that those of us who do this work as a result are in much more vulnerable positions than people who were doing this work in the 1970s and 1980s.
1: It's definitely, I mean, there have uh, the amount of reporting we've done on, on similar, you know, whether it's, uh, Campaign fund complaints against squad members that are completely made up, and to force them to go through legal hoops. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is it's it's part of the, using the law as a weapon. Um, the right wing has done quite a bit of it, and and frankly, I think even Democrats are doing it uh, against progressives. So, it's it's scary. It's definitely part of a trend. And um, Stephen, I I'm just always so grateful for your your honesty and your empathy and your time, because it is precious. You are with your family uh, now. And and I hope we can get some more updates really soon and we'll keep the pressure up on Merrick Garland, the Biden administration, everywhere we can do so and, and share that thank, with folks as
2: well. Thank you so much. And um, I wanna compliment you for your great work. And I, I really think the independent media, you know, you and others are just critical to the survival of our democracy. If it, does survive. And I just want to salute you for what you do. And also, by the way, if people want to help, you know, the people of Ecuador help me, please go to freedonziger.com, F-R-E-E-D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R, and you can hopefully donate to our legal defensemen. It costs a lot of money to pay lawyers and to deal with what they're throwing at me. So if you can join our campaign and, and give a little, that'd be great. Even if you can't give, join the campaign. We need as many people as we can behind this. So thanks again. I really appreciate Thank the opportunity.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Be well. All right. We will be right back after this brief little break with Ben Dixon. I am so excited because this is our first first show, uh, full show of the year, but also we're launching this a new segment every Wednesday. Uh, it is Solidarity Wednesdays with the one and only Ben Dixon. He's the host of the Benjamin Dixon Show, and he's also the author of God is Not a Republican.
3: Uh-oh. Wow. You went way back. That's it.
1: I mean, <laughs> I you're haven't... an author. You got yeah, it. Yeah,
3: I wrote that one some years ago. How... Happy New Year to you.
1: You're looking good. You're looking you. well rested.
3: Thank you. you Got know, some rest. You're looking the world great. Is a mess. <laughs> it is falling apart.
1: <laughs> Literally. Okay, so I'm um this is our January 6th uh commemoration. I don't know what yep. we want to we don't want to commemorate them. I guess that we fought the coup like maybe mm. we should commemorate the Capitol Hill police, I guess. I'm Definitely. not sure. Um I I have to start off with this because I saw this on on going viral on Instagram. Uh, the Good Liars highlighted. I think they saw it in Florida. There was a Blue Lives Matter, the like blue line um, sign. And it said, you know, we support police, asterisk, <laughs> except for the Capitol Police. Literally, mm. that was on a sign. So wow, shows you where they are in their wow. mindset. Wow.
3: Um,
1: Well, I mean, I know you just watched the Steven Donziger uh, interview and Steven is, I think, a good interview for the top of the year to remember yeah. exactly like what we're up against, but what were your, I yeah. know you had some thoughts,
0: you
3: know, I, I was sitting there thinking if they can do this to, um, a Harvard educated successful white man, mm-hmm. it's about to get pretty real in this country. Um, and when he said that this was the first type of, uh, first type of conviction, uh, with a corporate legal team, you know, they're, they're sending, they're not even sending a chilling effect at this point. What they're saying is, look what we can get away with. Mm. And here's the asterisk here. The New York Times won't even say anything about it. Um, the Biden administration won't say anything about it. Um, I don't know if he was going to say whether or not Barack Obama was going to come down and visit him. Uh, but I doubt you're going to get Barack Obama to say anything about it. And that's because that's exactly what well, anyway, I feel like that's the plan, Monomiki. Yeah. I feel like we're headed towards a fascistic state and and if there's more than one side to uh, the culprits.
1: You mean that um, mandating vaccines and masks, not even actually mandating vaccines, uh, mandating masks inside private facilities is not fascism, that this is fascism? <laughs> what are you talking about?
3: Exactly, right? Um, the, <laughs> the fact that... I, I don't know who was saying this, but it's it, it pretty recently, I think it might've been your show or someone else's show. And they were saying that it, it actually was Tim Black, how yeah. how you put out conspiracies to distract from the clear conspiracy in front of you. That's right. The real conspiracy is that America is falling into a theocratic fascistic state. And well, there's some complicit parties all around us. Yeah.
1: So- this is what I love about our segment that we're going to be doing is, is I, I know you and I have privately talked about this offline about how it's more important than ever for the movement to really stay in solidarity and learn about solidarity and learn about being a great ally um, because they're going to do everything they can to come after us, divide us, right. distract us, channel our energy in non-productive directions because they're preying on – Folks feeling insecure as they should be. I think this is this is a really unstable time in our history, and I, I, I worry that like you know there there are good actors that are falling into these bad habits, and there are bad actors who are definitely taking advantage of this moment. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, maybe before we get to like the the one year uh, note of the coup, what what's your take like on the state of the movement? <laughs>
3: You know, I think that's why I'm so I'm glad we're doing this segment. I'm I'm glad we're doing this segment because we we have to be able to fight like hell in our silos Mm. on our particular issues that are important to us. But then come up and unify with other people who are not going to fight like hell in our particular silo. We get it. But we got to unify to fight like hell on the things that were all a common threat to us. And the creeping fascism is a common threat to us. And I think our segment, and, and don't get me wrong, like I know that's a melodramatic way to frame it, but honestly, mm. we're in a competition of words and rhetoric and and uh, propaganda. And, you know, so we have to come together in solidarity as often as we can to fight some of these common fights.
1: Right. And and we'll talk about some of the, the tactics that they're using against us, against others to distract what kind of strategies they use. Because here's the, the thing, like, a lot of this stuff has been done before. Mm. If we go back to our roots, if we go back to history, if we go back to the writings, you know, whether it's uh, biographies of Rosa Luxemburg, who was predicting what was going to happen in 1938, and then of course she was yes. killed for that, or you know, the the countless acts against the civil rights movement and union leaders um, in the mid you know last century, in in from the 30s all the way up. So um, the coup. Let's I want to play this one clip that was on MSNBC uh, (laughs) because there's some there's some
4: debate over what we want to call it, but it still happened. So let's play this clip. And all this required was peace and calm on Capitol Hill. And at 1 p.m. Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz and Gosar, a representative, started the Green Bay sweep beautifully, challenging the results of Arizona. Here's the most important thing I can tell you about this. The the thing that we were trying to deal with was, was a media which refused to acknowledge any kind of possible fraud or irregularities. Yeah,
3: you just described this plan as a way to take an election where the outcome was established, by independent secretaries of state, by the voters of those states, and legal remedies have been exhausted with the Supreme Court never even taking, let alone siding with any of the claims that you just referred to. So legally, they went nowhere.
2: Then you will use the incumbent losing party's power, that was the Republican Party that was losing power, to overtake and reverse
3: that outcome. Do you realize you are describing a coup?
4: No, I I totally reject many of your premises there. First of all, the election was still in doubt and would be until it was certified. Second, the idea that that secretaries of state, particularly in Michigan and and Pennsylvania, were like innocent parties. I mean, Jocelyn Benson and Kathy Bookfar, the secretaries of state in, in Michigan and Pennsylvania, they were put in power by George Soros. For the express purpose of shifting the playing field. Wow. wow. George Soros. Oh, man. Nice. Okay.
1: I love that he, you know, he could have maybe gotten away with that. Maybe gotten away with his insanity and his legal skirt, you know, using legal terms. But then when he threw in George Soros, you're just yeah. like, Yeah. Yeah. You understand you're on MSNBC right now, right? Like, what? right. That was, of course, Peter Navarro, who's assistant to the president. And he, um, you know, he he went on MSNBC for some reason. Uh, I don't really understand. And he was describing Pence's actions. Uh, okay, so so you know, this system. This is what Ari Melber later said that the system was designed to uh, thwart people like you because yeah. Pierre Navarro was basically <laughs> calling Pence somebody who betrayed the president, but he was doing his, his whole, uh, duty. Right. Yeah. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Like these guys are still in denial, pushing the big lie.
0: <laughs> you
3: know, um, Peter Navarro is, how can I put this? He, he, is like the clean cut version of the idiocy of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, mm. Matt Gates. You know, Peter Navarro is the traditional Republican establishment who has made his league with Donald Trump and he's going to go down with Donald Trump um, all the way down to fascism. He's totally OK with it. You got, you got to understand, like during the beginning of the pandemic, Peter Navarro was one of the people who said, yeah, totally go back to school. We don't, you know, mm-hmm. the pandemic pandemic. Um, so we're dealing with sociopaths who and, I, and I'm dealing with babies in the background as it's well. It's all
1: good. Speaking of pandemic <laughs> work, I think the world's used to it now.
3: Exactly. We're dealing with but social Remember when those patterns. were
1: viral? Those used to be viral moments. They're now, now, like, now coming. It's everybody.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but it really does remind me. It just reminds me of how brash fascism is and where we are on this this march towards fascism that you have a Republican establishment type like Peter Navarro who goes on and says basically, yeah, no, it, it wasn't a coup. I don't care what you said
1: it's maybe it's like there's some sort of legal definition to the coup. like if somebody from the official office of the president says that it was a coup is that speaking on behalf of the government and basically proving that you are a traitor and we know how this country there's there's a lot of traitors in this country that have gotten away with it but we do have a precedent at least for for you know that there is a protection in the constitution um one of uh, the staff sergeants, a- a- I'm going to ex- excuse my language here, Gonell a- K- Gonel uh, tweeted something. Let's let's this tweet of his quote. All right, do we all see this? Here we go. So, this is the, um, if we can zoom in a little bit, these were his injuries, right? Mm. And he he quotes Pence saying that one day in January, because Pence is of course saying that one day in January instead of again, the coup uh, or attempted coup. This happened to me giving him and others time to escape, to, so, to safely do so, so he couldn't get hanged executed. To some my yeah. efforts and injuries are just an exaggeration. They did this to me, this is why it matters to me and you should and it should matter to you too, is essentially what he's saying. Um, that one day in January, this is the part that really like shocks me. There were actual lawmakers in there, whether it was Nancy Pelosi who may not be pushing them hard enough or Mike Pence, who they were literally, this entire thing was designed to go after him. They wanted to lynch him on the ball. Like mm. what? And yeah. he is still protecting them.
3: Mm. Mm. You know, cause he has a conundrum on his hand. This is a civil war in the Republican party. It's a two factions, the Trump, faction and the Koch brother faction. Mm. Donald Trump did a really good job of coming in and doing his own coup of the Republican party by winning unexpectedly, um, the presidency. Mm -hmm. And I say unexpectedly, but Keith Ellison actually was the person he called it. He said that Trump could win and Trump did win. Mm -hmm. That created a new faction against which uh, Peter Navarro, just in this clip he was talking about, or in the next clip, um, uh, when he was talking to Ari, he he starts talking about the Koch brother faction. And and Mm -hmm. so... Mike Pence cannot blow up the entirety of the Republican party. So they're trying to figure out how do we deal with Donald Trump without destroying the Republican party? And and No-Miki, I don't I don't think they can get rid of Trump without destroying the party. So Mike Pence really should come down on the right side of history. But alas, he's deciding to say that day in January,
1: yeah, someday I mean, in January. <laughs> let's put this let's put this uh this quote up again that day in January from Mike Pence uh, and Lindy Lee's tweet that she put out there. I'll read it verbatim. So Lindy Lee, uh, who's an activist. Oh, the other tweet. One second. I'll put it up on my computer. You know the jam. Mm,
3: (laughs) We're all hosts.
1: So Lindy Lee is, is an activist, She's a, she was part of the Biden, I think, team, if I recall, mm. the campaign team. Yeah. So she says, Mike Pence says, you know, January 6th was just a day in January, then Pence on January 6th, afraid that the Secret Service would kidnap him, said, quote, I'm not getting in the car, Tim. If I get in that vehicle, you guys are taking off. This is insane. Mm. And the Capitol Police said, we did everything possible to prevent him from being hanged oh. and killed in front of his daughter and wife. We know what was going on, but now that it's being laid out with quotes, wow. just how conscious everybody was in the Capitol was happening. I mean, we remember the tweets when, when you had squad members in closets, you know, Corey Bush uh, texted me the day of. She was on, you know, in a basement in the Capitol, scared for her life. But now you're seeing how the Republicans dealt with it. They literally mm. were afraid of the Secret Service. Mm. Mm.
3: Yeah. And 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 they're going to try again. Yeah. Of all the things I could say, I think people need to realize they're going to try again. They're not and satisfied. And then what? Well, you know? I think they, they keep trying until they succeed. Yeah.
1: See, here's the thing. They don't actually, a lot of these, these guys are QAnoners, you know, were, were mobilized from QAnon. They, you know, some were Proud Boys. It was like a collective of, of the far right, but some of them regret. And said that they were being brainwashed from QAnon mm-hmm. when they were interviewed by the FBI. I think what what we on the left need to do is recognize more of that. And I'd love to hear your take in, in terms of how we prevent this. Because Democrats are clearly not going to do anything. They're doing very mm. little. They're doing these hearings.
0: Wow. It's important
1: yeah. They'll raise a lot of money off of it. It's an election year. you know. Perhaps uh, highlighting the coup over and over will remind folks that you know our government is at risk and democracy at risk. Maybe that'll win or protect some Democrats, right?
4: right. But the
1: truth is, is that the Koch brothers invested locally 40 years ago. They built the the framework for people like the Proud Boys to be running for office locally. Whether or not they're fighting with each other or not, they're either going to storm the Capitol or they're going to walk into the Capitol with a badge.
3: Mm. Mm. Or they'll get elected.
1: That's what I you mean know? by getting elected as
3: a- Oh, as I thought you meant they'll go in as security, they'll Uh-oh. go in as security as well.
1: <laughs> well, that's true, yeah.
3: <laughs> you know, um, cause many of them were uh, police officers themselves or ex-military and they, you know, so they have their ways. Um, what do we do?
1: Yeah.
3: You know, we have to honestly show the democratic party. No, 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 forget about the democratic party. We have to show the people that there's a better breed of Democrat out here, that we see what's going on, and that we see that these people, when I say Democrat, I'm talking about lowercase d, Mm -hmm. small d Democrat. There's a better breed of Democrat out here who's not going to sit back and just watch these fascists take over. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it starts with how we campaign, how we talk about these things, like very clearly stating it like you just did, Nomiki. This is a fascist coup this is the fascist takeover and we need to fight back accordingly. I think just using that language and how we campaign will set us apart because a lot of the Democrats are starting to fall
1: asleep. Yeah. So. No, it's true. It's, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm of the mindset just a little bit different is yes, there are obviously better breeds of Democrats, but I also think that we shouldn't have to rely on those Democrats and we should just be running against them. We should run red mm-hmm. districts as progressives, mm-hmm. the Democrats, you know, the establishment Democrats don't want to run people against these fascists because they think they're going to lose? Well, guess what? Somebody should. Because my thought is there are enough sane people out there that don't want a proud boy representing them in city council. That's right.
3: That's right. They'll take a
1: mom, they'll take a teacher. They'll take somebody from the community that's sane and is thinking about the community and is invested in the community. That's Mm -hmm. a boy who's going to, you know, burn the house down.
3: And I'm going to tell you the honest truth. I think what happened was the democratic party found how much, found out how much money they can make from running campaigns. And they are more interested in just milking that money than actually electing and accomplishing anything, Um, because it makes no sense that we have to recreate the organizing structure every two years and every four years for someone to run for office when those infrastructures should be in place all the time for political action, for organizing, for fighting it back you asking all the right questions today,
1: honey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling stressed a little bit <laughs> about the future. Because, okay, I mean, do you think that we're going to, what do you think 11 months from now, where do you think we'll be?
3: Unless there's some divine intervention, I don't mm-hmm. see the Democratic Party doing what's necessary to block um, Democrats from losing the House
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, and block, I, you know, at this pace I don't want to sound like the bearer of bad news, but we're—they're winning. Their strategy is working, and the Democrats are sitting back like, mm, "It's fine." Um, I don't know. I hope. I hope we can get something going on around here.
1: And and Trump's—you know—he's leaning into places like Arizona. He wants to these rallies uh, with—you know—in in in a state that has a lot of QAnon viewers. They arrested some people in Arizona who stormed the Capitol who were caught. Um, that were big QAnon. You know, believers, I guess, Mm. Uh, and I think I don't know. I think he's leaning in because he he knows how close it was in Arizona, and in places like Georgia, like what what's happening there. You're you're on the ground.
3: Um, You know, everyone is honestly gearing up for the impact of Donald Trump on the gubernatorial race with Stacey Mm -hmm. Abrams, Brian Kemp, and David Perdue, as well as the Secretary of State race. Donald Trump is trying to get one of his henchmen in there to win that seat. Um, So everyone is trying to gear up to hold the line against Trump in the 2018, uh, 2018. 20. <laughs> the upcoming, the 2022. Don't we wish. Election. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Don't we wish it was, we yeah. still had that energy. All right. Uh, before we wrap, God asked you a question. Sure. So what do you think the state of the left is? Where, where do you think we need to pivot a little bit?
3: I think we need to just continue to swim in some solidarity. Um, I think we recovered or rather, no, we didn't recover. We survived. Mm -hmm. 2021. 2021 was really the testing of our solidarity, the testing of the left, particularly the online left, the Twitter left. Um, That was a power source. And and people could say what they want to. The online left and the Twitter left was a power source that was attacked in 2021. Mm -hmm. And they almost took us out. But we're still here. And I think the way we strengthen ourselves is through solidarity. Mm
1: -hmm. I love it. Yeah. Solidarity Wednesdays with Ben. Check us out. We'll be on his show at 8 a.m. on Wednesday uh, over at give out the where where can people find your show? The Benjamin we'll Dixon
3: Morning Show. Right anywhere where you stream the Benjamin Dixon Morning Show.
1: Easy enough. These people are smart. They know. Um, and we're excited. We're going to have you on Wednesday nights. 8 PM. I'm here. looking
3: forward to it. Glad Thank to be you. here.
1: <laughs> all right. Happy New Year to you, Ben, and your family. And we will see you next week.
3: Take care. See you next time.
1: Well, guys, I am excited to welcome some new patrons. We're going to give a little bit of a shout out. We have uh, Torrential R and Allison M. Thank you for joining us on Patreon. And John B. And Vic Agata. And my favorite is Obvious Fake Name. I wonder what Obvious Fake Fake Name's real name is. And Vic L., thank you for increasing your pledge. Just thank you so much. If you are not a patron, please, if you can join us, if you can't afford, let us know. We can sort it out. Uh, because we are a community, and as Sam Cedar likes to say, when we get in new patrons, um, it helps support those who aren't able to be patrons at that time. You get the full show, you get it early, you get extra stuff. That's why Patreon is so important to us. Because we're independent media, we got to put it all together. Especially important when the algorithms are playing around, you know? Uh, but we also have some Super Chats on YouTube. Let's go through that. Uh, Phil Esk, thank you so much. I'm going to assume Esk is... Because he's a lawyer, Phil. Uh, Lulu Girl, happy new year, Nomiki. Much love from Michigan. Thank you, Lulu Girl. And Matt B. My New Year's resolution is to become a member Patreon, patron of the Nomi Key Show. What's the best way? I think I just said that. I think that's the best way. Join us on patreon.com/slash the Nomi Key Show. Thank you. And our Twitch folks uh, are, are different. Here we go. What do we have here? We have that dynamic dreamer resubscribed. They've been subscribed for three months. Thank you so much. Uh, and gifted one community subscription. Thank you, that dynamic dreamer. Jojo says, a cab, subscribe for three months. Thank you. And oh, thank you to the Surfs TV. We love the Surfs. We gotta have Lance back on. Thanks for rating. We really appreciate you. All right, guys. Uh, we will see you on Friday for Fem Friday. In the meantime, as always, stay in solidarity.
0: The no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity, cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and it's melted by in Time to build a new system, unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues. The no me, key show.